See, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where real faith gets put into practice. When the media starts screaming out, hurricane, hurricane, snowstorm, blizzard, you know, and the people still show up. I remember a great story of, of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who became one of Britain's greatest preachers that ever, ever lived. And he went out in a snowstorm, and he couldn't get to his regular church, so he ducked into this little alley, and there was this little, little country church, and he um, went into it, and the regular pastor couldn't be there, so one of the congregants got up and started preaching from Isaiah. Look unto Jesus, look unto Jesus, look unto Jesus. That's all the guy knew. He didn't know how to preach. And, ha and Charles Haddon Spurgeon understood that he was talking about him looking to Jesus. Got saved, came to Christ, and became one of Britain's greatest preachers. So you really don't need me up here today. All you need to hear is somebody come up and say, look unto Jesus. <laughs> but praise God. Turn to John uh, chapter 3 verses 22 to, through 36. That'll be our text tonight. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, who has made, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Father, we thank you for your timely word. We thank you for your eternal word. We thank you that your heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Help us to hear what the Spirit is saying through your word today. In Christ's precious name, amen. So if you're familiar with John's Gospel, and if you remember... What I have been preaching on the last few months, you may have recognized the early chapters of the Gospel of John. This is a glorious Gospel. I love this Gospel. Uh, we witness a series of incidents where Jesus inaugurates a completely new order in contrast to the completely old order. For example, when I spoke on the wedding at Cana, Jesus made what? He made wine out of water, chapter 2. The wine symbolized the superiority of the new covenant compared to the Old Covenant. And we saw in chapter 3 that Christ brings 
Christ being lifted up on a cross would provide a much deeper cure than a bronze serpent did. The bronze serpent, when looked at, provided what? A cure in the physical body. The cross provides an eternal spiritual cure. And now we have another comparison in our text tonight. The ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And before I speak on the contrasts between John's and Jesus' ministry, I want to give you a short profile on John the Baptist. This is not exhaustive, but it's enough to draw a picture of his person and his ministry. First of all, if you know anything about John the Baptist, he was different in every way, in every single way, unless you lived in a desert. If you lived in a desert, then you'd understand some of John the Baptist's uh, his style and his way. Uh, first of all, he wore camel's hair clothing. Now that sounds very itchy to me. You know, I, I don't know if I could ever wear camel's hair clothing. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. Locusts, of course, are grasshoppers. You know, and by the way, we're serving that today at fellowship time. And unfortunately, I will not be there. But, um, so he was very strange. As a matter of fact, if, um, if he was walking the earth today, they would probably put him in a straitjacket and ship him off to Bellevue. He was a very strange character. And his message was different. His message was different. Matthew 3, 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he told the leaders in Matthew 3, 7 to 10, he said, But when he saw many of the Pharisees coming to, be, coming to him in his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he was one strange character. And I could say this, we need more John the Baptist preachers today. We really do. He was also the one who the prophet Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 43. He said, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He called Israel, this was his, his role, he called Israel to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist was also identified with Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament. Elijah, like John the Baptist, was known as his uncompromising for the word of God. He was bold and uncompromising, Elijah, and so was John the Baptist. And it wasn't John the Baptist's goal to be, to be unique or different. That was not his goal. You know what his aim was? To be obedient to God. That was his aim. But God called him to live in the desert, to wear these kind of clothing, which we'll talk about in a little while, to eat this kind of diet, and, and, and just to proclaim an, un, an unpopular message. And he was very obedient to that. He knew his role. He was to announce the arrival of Messiah, Jesus Christ. John was set apart from his mother's womb to do this. Almighty God called and set him apart for the specific role, the forerunner of Christ. That was John the Baptist. Even Zacharias, his father, made it clear when John was born he was to be a Nazarite. 
one who was set apart for service to God, and John fulfilled the call for his whole life. The Nazarite uh, uh, took this oath, and they and they uh, and but he was very different than the rest of the, the, the common people of Israel. And when he took this oath, he, he fulfilled it. Sometimes the oath lasted um, one week, two weeks, um, but it didn't last their whole lives. But with John the Baptist, it lasted his whole life. With Samuel the prophet, it lasted his whole life. And with Samson, it lasted his whole life. They took the vow and it, it, it was for life. John, uh, Luke Chapter 1, verses 15 to 17 says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, ju of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what we see here in this text, in this text I just read is, the absolute sovereignty of God, of not only in salvation, but His call on John's life. Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He was called from his mother's womb. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. You see, God chose him. This doesn't mean that John's willingness, uh, John, uh, this doesn't negate John's willingness uh, to answer the call. However, the ultimate factor was Christ's own choice. So we have here in this text, as we look at this text, John and Jesus' ministry, now they begin to overlap. And there's a reason for that. And as I stated before, there was a definite contrast between John's ministry and Christ's ministry. Why? Because John the Baptist was the last prophet under the Old Covenant. He wasn't in the New Covenant. You may read about him in the New Testament, but he wasn't under the Old... Uh, 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 he wasn't in the New Covenant yet. He was still under the Old Covenant. Um... And now the Old Covenant, or sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, and I'm going to give you just a little background of the Old Covenant. This was God's law of righteousness, and it reflected God's own holy nature. The covenant set Israel apart from the other nations, which in essence were pagan. See, the, the Old Covenant, God gave them that, and it set them apart from these pagan nations. But Israel failed miserably under the Old Covenant law. They failed because they assumed the Old Covenant was the means of salvation. And that's not why God gave Israel that covenant. That was not His intent. His purpose for it was to show Israel their own failings through the law and their inability to keep it perfectly. That's what God expected. Perfect righteousness. Perfect obedience, which Israel failed. So then, you know, and I, also, I often tell people when I'm, when I'm speaking with them, why do you think God gave you the Ten Commandments? Because no one has kept it. And if they're honest, they'll know that no one has kept the Ten Commandments. God gave you the Ten Commandments to show you that you can't keep them and that you need a Savior. The law was not wrong. There was nothing wrong with the law. Paul showed us that in, in, in Romans 7.12. Paul tells us the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So the law wasn't evil or bad. Rather, the law is perfect 
is a perfect reflection of God's holy character. And Israel did not at all reflect God's holy character, neither did any of us. The only one who ever reflected God's holy character, he was the exact representation of God, was Jesus Christ. So, once again, what was the purpose of the Old Covenant? It was to show Israel and all the people they fail in keeping the commandments and they are in need of a Savior. Paul told the Galatian church explicitly that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. I like the way, uh, I think the uh, NAS says it, or the New King James Version says, it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. So God gave the old covenant with purpose and intent, but Israel failed to recognize it as well as most religious institutions. And John the Baptist comes on the scene now as the last Old Testament prophet and divinely ordained forerunner of the Messiah. See, he was the climax of the Old Testament history and prophecy as well as the beginning of the historical record of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was also chosen to call Israel to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his path straight, which is found in all the Gospels, by the way, about John the Baptist. Prepare, what does that mean? Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, prepare comes from a Greek word, hetomizo, and means to prepare, to make ready, to make oneself ready. In ancient times, people were sent before the king on a journey to level roads or paths and make sure it was free of debris, potholes, or any hazard that would make the journey difficult. Now, was John the Baptist literally making roads you know, smooth for Jesus to walk down? No, of course not. He was telling Israel, prepare your minds and give the Messiah a fit reception and secure his blessings. And let me conclude his profile with this. John the Baptist's preaching was not whimsical by any stretch of the imagination. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, says this, and I love what he wrote. He says his preaching was no pussyfooting, no beating about the bush, no smooth, oily, namby-bamby preaching. The Baptist was a man among men, and his preaching was straight from the shoulder. Now we, we have today that preach half the gospel, they preach the very love of God, but they never preach about the wrath of God, or hell, or, you know, or condemnation, or judgment. They only preach about the love of God. The gospel is both. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But the implication is, if you don't believe Him, what is left in, in 18, verse 18 is, is you have condemnation and judgment. So, and in spite of his great forceful preaching, John the Baptist's great forceful preaching, and his popularity, John became very popular. John's ministry was about to change as he comes, as, as, he, as he crowds following him and begins to follow Jesus. That must have been a blow to his pride. At least we, we would think that. John's ministry representing the Old Covenant, was fading as he was given the final testimony and witness of Christ. And Christ's ministry of the New Covenant was now moving to the forefront. You see the transition that's happening here? John is fading. The Old Covenant is fading. And now the New Covenant is rising up and rising to the forefront. 
John said about, Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why are believers greater than John the Baptist? Because the believer has experienced the cross. The believer has experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the believer has received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Where Old Testament prophets and Old Testament saints at that point, including John, only saw it from a distance. And in a shadowy form. They never saw the reality. Even though John saw Jesus face to face, that was before his death and his resurrection. All he saw was the humanity of Christ. And, and, and uh, well, the divinity of Christ veiled in humanity. So he didn't see the cross and the resurrection. So we see in this text tonight the old covenant fading with all its glory and the new covenant rising with much greater glory. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, the third chapter, verses 7 through 11. He says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even much more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So let's get into our text tonight. We're going to see the greater glory. And as I said earlier, the, the, the early chapters of the Gospel of John, we, we witness a series of occurrences where Jesus introduces a new order in contrast with the old order of things. We see in chapter 3 where Jesus had a major, major discussion, and I, and I spoke on this, with Nicodemus, <clears throat> excuse me, which would challenge his whole eternal destiny. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you have spiritual cleansing, and spiritual life imparted to you, in other words, unless you are born again, Nicodemus, from above, which is a work on the Holy Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. What he basically told Nicodemus is all your good works and your position as Israel's teacher, quote-unquote, will by no means give you access into the kingdom of God. So Jesus threw Nicodemus into a tailspin with new language of the new covenant. There's a new order of things, Nicodemus. It's not business as usual. And John the Baptist was preparing the way for Messiah's arrival, where Christ would bring in a new covenant through his sacrificial death and resurrection. <clears throat> Let's go back to verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now he says, after this, which indicates the occurrence, the occurrences that Jesus spoke about, or John spoke about, in chapters 2 and part of chapter 3. We see that Jesus left Jerusalem with his disciples and went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them, with his disciples. He remained. Now, <clears throat> I just want to give, interject something. 
And I want you to think about something. Even though this is not the main point of the text. But re- remained, when, Jesus, when John says that he remained, it comes from the Greek word diatribao, and means spend time or pass the time. We think of Christ's life and ministry, a lot of times we think of his miracles, right? We think of his death and his resurrection. But a very important thing we should always bear in mind is that he spent time with his disciples. He poured his life into his disciples. And it says that he was baptizing. However, as chapter 4 verse 2 says, Jesus did not personally baptize, but his disciples did. In verse 23, it says, John was also baptizing at Enon, near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And at this point of the gospel, of John's gospel, the focus shifts from now Jesus to John the Baptist. It's like a play, you know, you, you go to this little theater and, and, and the plays are all on stage and and there's one scene going on here in the, in the left-hand uh, corner of the, of the stage and all of a sudden the lights fade out and now the lights turn on and there's another scene. It's just John the Baptist fading out and Jesus rising up. So John is actually continuing to baptize. He, he never stopped. The, the emphasis is that it was Jesus' ministry now was beginning to baptize. The scene is... Jesus' disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside and John is baptizing in Eon near Salem which is north of Judea. Jesus' baptism was not, by the way, a Christian baptism. It was a similar, very similar to John the, John the Baptist because Jesus wasn't crucified and raised from the dead yet. So there was really no Christian baptism at this point. However, however it did foreshadow Christian baptism. And now it says that John was baptizing in verse 24. It says, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now why would, if you look in your Bibles, there's parentheses around that. Why would John say that? In the Synoptic Gospels, it doesn't say that. Matter of fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they begin their account of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee after, Jesus, after John is already in prison. So this sounds like a, a contradiction here. But the statement that John had not yet been thrown into prison informs readers that this incident took place between Jesus' temptation and John's imprisonment. A period of time which the Synoptic Gospels are really just silent about. The Synoptic uh, Gospels begin their account of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee after John was put in prison. But John talks about something that happened before. The Gospel of John supplements them by recording these earlier events from Jesus' ministry that they was actually simultaneously with John the Baptist's ministry in Samaria, which Matthew, Mark, Luke are silent about. So there was no contradiction. John is just saying something that happened that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are silent about. And we've learned a little bit about the Synoptic Gospels in, uh, in our class. Anyway, we come to verse 25 and 26, and it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So we, we see here what? We see a debate arising 
So you have the separate ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus at the same time. John's and Jesus' ministry going on. And at some point, a debate occurred between John's followers, and it says a Jew. It could have been possibly a follower of Jesus. We don't know. The text doesn't indicate it, and there's no really real information on it. And this debate involved something about purification or ceremonial washing. And we really don't know really what really that is all about either. We don't know the name of the certain Jew or the nature of the argument. So it couldn't be really that important. It couldn't be, we shouldn't focus on that point. However, we do know that this argument was produced by the fact that John's ministry was sinking and Jesus' ministry was having success. And it began to be a little rivalry. And it's apparent that John the Baptist's disciples felt that his ministry was threatened. They felt threatened. Could John's disciples have been harboring envy for Jesus' fame? Could they? Yes. They said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They wouldn't even say Jesus' name. It's amazing. They said, he was with you, he was baptizing you. He, he, he. They wouldn't say Jesus, the one you bore witness about. Matter of fact, they said that. They said, you bore witness about him. So the problem did not lie with John the Baptist. The problem lied with their own evil hearts. They experienced in recent days a great popularity. And now it's beginning to diminish because of Jesus and his gang. How dare them? How dare them? That's the kind of attitude they had. How dare them do this and, and we've done all this work. They were angry that Jesus is becoming a celebrated leader. It's strange that they went to John and said, To whom you bore witness? So they knew what John said. They weren't ignorant of what John said. They missed the purpose of John's ministry, however, which was to point Israel to Jesus and his gang. Or really not and his gang, but to Jesus. <laughs> By the way, that's all Christians, that's all of our purpose. Point people to Jesus. That has not changed. That's all, the ministry from the pulpit is to point people to Jesus. Now John's reaction to this pitiful, distressed group of disciples was, I'm sure, unexpected. I ex they probably expected John to say, yeah, you're right, we got to do something about this. Let's call a church meeting. <laughs> but he showed no envy, he showed no distress, but to the contrary, he was actually pleased. Listen to verse 27 to 30. John answered, this is an answer to their, their distress. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness Bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And this is a key verse. He must increase and I must decrease. So instead of joining in on the rampage, John bears witness again to the Messiah. He was very different. In many ways, even his attitude towards the Messiah. 
He tells them a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Every Christian, pastor, worship leader, Sunday school teacher, or whatever ministry God has called you to, and everyone has a ministry, even if you're a, a homemaker, that's a ministry to your children and your family. Whatever God has called you to, needs to understand as John did, it comes from God and not you. First Corinthians 4.7 says it like this. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? So John understood. He understood what the role of his ministry was. And he understood who gave him that gift and who called him to that ministry. John the Baptist affirmed and embraced his subordinate role as the forerunner of Christ. Oh, oh, how freeing it is to be free from competition and to understand and to accept wherever God has called Amen. you to, to minister. Amen. It is so free. Kent Hughes says, no matter who we are, no matter how much success we are having, and I want you to listen to this, this is not just for the pastor, the minister, the evangelist, this is for every single Christian. Sooner or later, our lives or our ministries will be eclipsed. The most successful, competent, or famous will one day be asked to take a lesser role. And we all need to know how to react at such a time. We need to have the attitude of John the Baptist. He goes on to say, the text we are now studying in this chapter, um, uh, I'm sorry, can't use, goes on to say that the text we are studying in this chapter is important because there is a regrettable competition among Christians. I've seen it over and over again. I've been tempted by it over and over again. No one is exempt from this temptation. And again in verse 28, John says that they knew plainly that he was not the Christ. He only came to prepare the way for him. And that was all. He knew his role once again. He understood and had a high view of God as sovereign who gives gifts. And because of that, it was okay to be outdone by another. Oh, how I need to learn over and over again the, the, the attitude that John the Baptist had. And John the Baptist was very content in his role. As a matter of fact, in verse 29, he compares himself to the friend of a bridegroom. Now, the new manners and customs of the Bible says this, the friend of the bridegroom was the person selected by the bridegroom to conduct the marriage negotiations on his part. It was he who carried messages between the bridegroom and the bride during the time of betrothal. Today, the role, the role of the best man is loosely based on this tradition. So in other, word, in other words, John the Baptist was like a best man. So, so John likens himself to the friend of a bridegroom. John was the best man, ready to do Jesus' bidding at his wedding. In Old Testament Israel, uh, they're described as the bride of Yahweh. And John is saying, Jesus is Israel's long-waited Messiah, the bridegroom. In New Testament theology, of course, the bride is applied to who? The church. We are now the bride of Christ. 
However, we share, we, we should also be the best man to pointing people to Christ like John the Baptist did. And, and John the Baptist was perfectly content to be the friend of the bridegroom. No competition in him. He was filled with joy watching people leave his ministry for Christ's. This was the purpose of his ministry. Prepare them and point them to Jesus. And now we read the most humble statement in probably all of Scripture, verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. Must comes from the Greek word day and means it is necessary. It is necessary that his ministry increases and it is necessary that my ministry decreases. There is here a divine necessity that John the Baptist faded out and Christ's ministry came to the forefront. This was God's will, not John's, that he would give way to Jesus Christ. His mission was over. There was no longer any reason for people to hang around John. And John understood this. His disciples did not. The king has arrived. The old covenant is fading. The new covenant has arrived. John the Baptist and the end of the old covenant. Jesus Christ and the beginning of the new age. Verse 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without, without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now we don't know if verses 31 to 33 was a continuation of John the Baptist, of his testimony, or was John the Gospels. The Greek scholars don't really understand it and don't know if, where it continues and where it ends. So I'm certainly not going to make a, even a guess at it. But whatever it is, whoever is saying it is still the Word of God. In any event, John was limited in even his ministry. On the other hand, Jesus, of course, was and is God incarnate, and his testimony to the truth was infinitely greater than John's. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, Long ago, many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So the last and greatest of the Old Covenant was John the Baptist, as I said before, but now it's Christ who speaks to us. No longer do we hear from the Old Testament prophets. We hear through Christ and His Word. Because His knowledge is not hearsay. He Himself is the source of divine truth. He came from heaven. And sadly, as John says in verse 32, no one receives His testimony. Of course, this doesn't mean no one, but the world in general rejects Christ. And we see that in John, um, the very first chapter of John, verses 5 and 11. It says, The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. 
he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But there is a great exception to the general rule. And we see that in John 1, verses 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. So there was a widespread opposition to Jesus, but in the midst of opposition, some listen and do receive the truth. God sovereignly, sovereignly, I, I underline the word sovereignly, opens eyes and ears to receive Christ, the Christ whom God sent, and gives the Spirit to Christ without limit. Why? Because He's God incarnate. The prophets of the Old Testament were led, we know that, and they were empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But John, but John uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. Yet the Spirit's power in his life was limited because of his fallen human nature. And we, as Christians, need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 5.18 says, the only one who didn't need to be filled with the Spirit, and that's what it means when God gives him Spirit without limit, because the Spirit was always with him in the fullness, he was the only one. We constantly need to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because also because Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt in his bodily, in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. Then as I said in the last message I gave that the basis of the new birth is based on the cross and the resurrection of Christ, and the basis of the cross is based on the Father's love for humanity. What do we see here? And here we see the basis of the Father's love for humanity is based on his love for his Son. We don't understand that sometimes. We think the cross is based on His love for us. No, it's based on the love of His Son. Amen. Dr. Sproul says, The whole scripture speaks to us of the love of God for His people. But so often we fix our attention on God's love for us, that we forget that the ground of that love is the love that the Father has from eternity for His Son. Remember, we're not the natural children of God. We're the adopted children of God. And even our election must always be understood to be in the Son. Salvation, election, adoption, deliverance from wrath, hell, judgment, condemnation. And, and, and we are the bride of Christ, not just the invited, all because of the Father's love for His Son. It's all about Jesus. And I think the main point that this text is not only John the Baptist and the Old Covenant fade and, the, and Christ and the New Covenant comes to the forefront, the transition from the Old to the New, but it's the application for us today. I believe there's a great application for us today. We must proclaim the, to the unbelieving world to repent and trust in Christ and that they should seek God's glory and not their own. I'm quoting a few people today because I like the flavor they add to this text. Gary Berg says of John 3, 22-36, the text we just read, is all about the fragmentation that results in the kingdom of God when Jesus is made to, when Jesus is made to compete with human vessels in this world. That's what happens. The body of Christ gets fragmented. When we do that, we're not seeking God's glory, but our own. And three things I want to conclude with. 
I think we need to be very careful of today. It's about the new covenant, not the old covenant. You see, many churches are still living in the old covenant. They're still preaching law. They're still preaching, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. The old covenant is obsolete, done away with, it's done. So many in the name of Christianity are still caught up with rules and regulations. And I know because when I first became a Christian, that's what was happening to me. I was relating to God, not through the Son Jesus Christ, but through trying to obey the commands as a means of pleasing God. And so many try to do that. And we could all be tempted to that, every one of us. And Paul warned the Galatian church about that. See, the old has faded and the new has come. And secondly, we need to be careful about our allegiance to religious leaders. John's disciples were so devoted to him that it actually blinded them to see Christ, the Messiah, which was the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry, to point them and others to Jesus. They were so devoted to him. This wasn't only a problem for John's disciples, but for Jesus and Paul's as well. Mark 9.38 John said to him, Teacher, this is John the Apostle, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. See, they only saw their little inner circle that was following Christ. They couldn't see outside the box. And then, of course, Paul the Apostle had the same problem in 1 Corinthians. He says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We need to be careful of that. I remember my wife telling me a story about one of her co-workers who's a Christian. And her and her husband go to this particular church. It's a very large church. And the husband will not listen to anyone but that pastor. No matter what that pastor says, he listens to. He will not listen to anyone else. And I could say here, that is a big danger. Amen. Jim Jones, people were devoted to Jim Jones, and 900 people perished because they were devoted to one person. And I must say also, they didn't know the Word of God. Got to be very careful to our allegiance to one particular religious leader. And that's why even when we as teachers and preachers of the gospel, we use other teachers to, to make sure that what we're speaking is in line with Orthodox Christianity. And thirdly, please be very careful of being envious of others' giftings. That's a common thing that happens in the body of Christ. Rejoice in their gifting, the giftings, even if it's greater than yours. Rejoice in their giftings. You can pray for these three things for yourself, and I'll conclude with this. Pray that God helps you to have a greater understanding of the new covenant. Pray for our allegiance to be to God and not to man. And pray for the success of others. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the bap 
John the Baptist's ministry and how he brought the old covenant to its climax and how he was your man and he did what you said and willingly faded out and willingly let Jesus come to the forefront. And we thank you, God, that that happened because Jesus came to the forefront, suffered, died, was buried, and was resurrected back to the life on our behalf. If it didn't happen that way, we wouldn't be sitting here today, Lord. So we thank you for the great new covenant, new covenant of grace and mercy, forgiveness, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, help us to learn lessons from this text, God, that our allegiance is to you and to you alone. And we thank you, God. We thank you, God. And help us to learn ne never to be jealous of anyone else's ministry, but to rejoice in their ministry, even if it overshadows ours. Because ultimately it's Christ. And that's who we're pointing people to, Lord. It's your Son, Jesus Christ. Not to our ministry, not to ourselves, not to the worship leader, not to the pastor. We're pointing them to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in Christ's precious name. Amen.